spent 10 years fighting for a seat at the table. Then I found myself at the head of the table at 30, which is way earlier than I ever anticipated. And then I had to challenge myself to be braver, to say to myself, I'm ready to build my own tables. No limits. How is everybody? This is Rebecca, and I've been missing you. I've actually been um, also really enjoying life. I was out on maternity leave for about four months with my daughter, my new daughter, Isabel. And if you can hear me smiling, it's because of her. And I also got to enjoy a little bit of time this summer. I hope you all enjoyed your summers. We are back now, though. No Limits is back in business. Hopefully, if you've been listening, you've been catching up on old episodes. But now we are back with the new, and I am so excited about our guest list, the women that we are now speaking to in this, I don't want to call it second season, but now that we're back, we've got all new, fresh episodes. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. If you're a regular, welcome back. If you are new, then welcome. We're really happy to have you here. Each week, we feature game-changing women who talk about their life, their careers, the choices that they've had to make along the way. We're trying to demystify success, and I know that's a weird word as it is. A lot of people think success isn't even the thing that we should all be after in our lives. Um, But when you think about your career and you think about wanting to achieve various goals, all the women who come here have had similar ideas, similar ambitions, And they've figured out at least part of it. And so we have these conversations each week with influential women across all different industries. The conversations go way beyond the resume. It's not about looking at their bio. I know you can do that on Wikipedia and search for it on the internet. And frankly, there are other podcasts that do that as well. That's not what we're doing here. We're talking about decision making. We're talking about the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that shape your career, the really tough choices where A and B both might look like good options or A and B both might look like terrible options. So we're looking for their advice. We are looking to hear good stories. And we're looking to talk realistically and honestly about what really happens when you're on that path. So if that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. I've been away from the mic for a while, so I just had to really put it all out there. In the coming weeks, you will not have to hear that entire intro from me, but I just want to say to all of you who've stuck with us and to all of you who've sent me emails over the course of my maternity leave, who've sent me emails over the summer, thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. I really love, honestly, the thankful emails about the work that we're doing here, and we will continue to do it because, in part... We love it, but also because of the response that we're getting from all of you. So thank you so much. Here's this week's episode. Elaine Welteroth, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm thrilled that you're here. We just, um, full disclosure, we just actually, the way we do it here is we always tape the worst advice question Mm. on camera, Mm -hmm. and then we come in and do the podcast. And you had such an interesting point to the worst advice. So I want people to stay tuned because that's going to come up at the end of this conversation. Um, And I just I love what you said. 
And it, it had to do with limits, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grew up in Fremont, California. Newark, California, actually. Even Newark. smaller than Fremont. Whoa. Okay, so Newark is they're close same, to same. Fremont. They're, they're, they're so close But to if you other. live there, you want to make sure that you're getting it right. Uh, I mean, but, <laughs> but most people most people don't even know. Even people who live in like San Francisco don't know that. Newark exists, so it's a how really small, small town. It? It's just, it's a really small town. I don't even I don't know the I don't know how many people. So are did there, you but... feel like I'm growing up in a small town no. and I want to be in a big place? No, I mean it felt very, um, you know, middle American experience. It, it felt very average, but um, but yeah, there was one high school, one junior high. Um, it was relatively small compared to. San Francisco, which was our nearest big big city. Did you have big dreams back then? Always. What did you want to be? Well, I don't know that I had a very clear definition of, you know, the job title or the career path per se, but I knew that I wanted to be great. I knew that mm-hmm. from a very young age. I I wanted, you know, what I thought of as a as a child as a big life. I wanted extraordinary. I wanted anything but ordinary. And I think that does that maybe is a result of work of growing up in a very small town Mm -hmm. where everything just felt uh, very ordinary. And everyone kind of drove the same kind of car. Everyone lived in the same kind of house. And I remember being really being drawn to, uh, I don't know, storylines that that had really successful women with these big careers. And uh, I saw myself in them, even though I was a little kid. Mm. And I and, and then I remember particularly being really drawn to the Oprah Winfrey show and, <laughs> yes. and Barbara Walters. And I remember spending my bath time as a kid interviewing myself, like like interviewing imaginary <laughs> um, you played both roles. Luminaries, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would be Oprah, and they, and it would be like, you know, Gandhi or Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> and we would have these really dramatic interviews in the bathtub. Like, and and you, I look back and I think it's so funny because you know most kids at that age probably have their 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 mom or dad reading them story. It's story time, and I was like, Mom, I'm good. I'm here. I'm creating my own stories, and and I think it's I think it's um, kind of significant looking back. And I think there's a universal truth there where I think a, a lot of us, if we can, if we just look back and think about the ways in which we played as children, there are so many bread cl- breadcrumbs that lead directly to what our passions really are. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that most of us are born into the world with this sense of limitlessness and unbridled confidence. And the world beats that out of you and you get labeled you get uh boxed in you're told to check boxes on gender on race and you learn about the social stratifications that come with those definitions and it starts to shrink our sense of self and the way we dream sometimes and so for me figuring out what i wanted to do required going back and thinking about who I was as a kid and trying to reclaim that sense of limitlessness and that sense of freedom. And I remember being in college, having a really hard time figuring out what's what's the career path. I like all these mm. things. Every what were the things that didn't make the cut? Oh, well, 
I actually went into college as a psychology major because I loved interviewing people. I, I realized I was like, wow, actually, somebody might pay me for it. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I want to get into their head. Yeah. My mom, always, I was like, I, I'm either just really nosy or I'm working on my interview skills. <laughs> I'm honing interview skills. And maybe, you know, that can pay off in terms of a career being a therapist, like really listening to people's problems, pulling out their truths, like that was uh, one path that I explored. And then I was like, oh, I got into those classrooms and I thought, but nobody cares about or compliments my outfits. No <laughs> one's like stylish up in here. And then, but I was too intimidated to go into f- capital F fashion. Mm. I thought there's no place for me in a world like that. Um, so it was difficult finding, and I loved I loved storytelling. I loved writing, but what are you going to do with mm-hmm. a, an English degree? And I didn't think that journalism was um, a lucrative or realistic path for me. Uh, so I felt the pressure to sort of find a stable career path. And ultimately, I had to really uh, I had to do the soul searching early on before jumping out into my career because to figure out what is my passion? What is my purpose? Because I don't want to wake up every day hating my job. I want I know the only way to be great and to be successful and to have a quote unquote extraordinary life by my own definition is to do that which only I can do and to do the thing that makes me feel alive and, you know, other in other words, find and live in my passion. Mm-hmm. And but yet that sounds like such a huge existential yes. question. How does one answer that at 21 years old? Well, it's also you said a couple of things that I I kind of heard myself in some things that you mentioned because you were were you the first in your family to go to college? Did I read that right? Yeah, I was the first in my family to graduate from college, to graduate from college. So not only are you looking for your passion, but you also financially don't have a safety net. Absolutely. You graduate and there might be other people around you that are pursuing these paths, but they may have mom and dad and the credit card to rely on. You didn't have that. No safety net. So you also have to be thinking about not just what would I love to do, but also what's going to pay the bills on my apartment if I move to New York City. Absolutely. What's the responsible choice? Um, yeah, that was a very real uh, factor in choosing my career path. But I, I had the invaluable experience of learning on the job what I don't want, mm. which is just as important when you're trying to figure out what you do want. Yes, which I, I always encourage people, take internships and don't think of the internships purely as these building blocks to the next job. You might go into an internship for something you believe will be your life's career mm-hmm. and you hate it. Mm-hmm. I hate it. <laughs> I actually hated a lot of my internships, if I I'm think being totally important. honest. And frankly, I hated my first job out of college, which I took so that I could pay off student loans and have an apartment in Chicago as an investment banking. And yet I'm so thankful for that job. Mm -hmm. It did give me financial freedom because I was able to pay off student loans. But I didn't ultimately graduate and go straight to journalism, even though that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually kind of glad it worked out that way. Mm -hmm. But I would have never known that back then. Of course. You have to – and I don't even – I almost said you have to make mistakes, but I actually think that – I don't consider them mistakes Mm -hmm. at all. I think of them as necessary steps – in the journey. How old are you today? I am 32. You're 32. Okay. Yes. I've read everywhere that you're 32, but I was like, what if she had her birthday recently and I missed You know I what missed is it. so funny about that? The fact that my age is everywhere now. I spent my entire 
the entire decade of my 20s protecting my age and never telling anyone my age. Totally. Because, and this is something we don't really talk about often, but ageism strikes in both directions. Yeah. For women in particular. And I often found myself uh, career wise in spaces where I was the youngest. Um, And as I got promoted, sometimes I would, you know, I was, I would be managing managing people people who are older than me. Totally. And that is often times uncomfortable for people. And so I learned early on that I couldn't talk about my age and um, by any means necessary. I remember even having assistants who I would I would literally it was it became a game. I would cover their eyes as they were uh, as they were booking my travel, as they would book my travel. (laughs) I would cover their eyes on the DOB part where you have to insert your date of birth. And I'm like, and I would insert it and then quickly press confirm so that they couldn't see how old I was. I'm, and then I became the youngest editor in chief in Condé Nast history at 29. And suddenly my age was everywhere. And I was like, right. you blew my cover. But, but, um, but I guess at that point, it's, it, it, it served me at that point. But, um, up until then, it did not. In many ways, it did not. Well, I think it's really telling you're at this stage in your career now where you can you can share all of this stuff and you can be vulnerable. And to me, it's a I think a lot about that in my own career, because I think there's a point at which the transition happens mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you have been doing everything in your power to in my in my case it was like play by their rules do everything yes. your boss wants check every box yes. like show up every day do everything and then and this will come up again in the worst advice conversation there comes a point where you realize if you keep doing it that way that you've come up against a wall yes because you're successful but you're not like on the other side of success right. you don't have the as you would say liberation i would think of it like freedom yeah success is freedom yes and i so identify with everything so when you, you said. get to that point where what was the moment in your career where you had that realization the first time i had that realization was actually when i got uh the job at Teen Vogue, not the editor-in-chief job, but the beauty director job, which was actually the first title I had at Teen Vogue. And at the time, I was 25. I was very much in what I call assimilation syndrome, where uh, I felt a lot of pressure to follow the rules. I felt as a woman of color in um, a predominantly white corporate environment that I wanted to do everything I could to blend in. I have big curly hair, for those of you who don't know what I look like, and I sort of strategically would slick my hair back into a tiny little bun. Mm. I code switched. I wore khaki pants and round toe flats, and you can't see what I'm wearing today, but it couldn't be farther <laughs> from that. Um, and that's very that couldn't be farther from my personality. Um, but I did those things because I wanted to fit in. I mm-hmm. wanted to fit the mold in order to be respected, to to have a sense of credibility uh, and to climb the ladder. Mm-hmm. And I thought I needed to do these things in order to in order to be uh, approved or accepted in these environments. And then um, and it was working for me. I was getting promoted. I was doing well by my own standards. And then I got this promotion at Teen Vogue. And it was the first time that I saw my name in headlines. Um, the headlines 
informed me that I was not just a a woman who worked hard for a dream job. I became a black girl making history mm. as the first ever black beauty director in Kanye Nas' 107-year history. And seeing my race in a headline next to my name in 2012 put a lot of things in perspective for me. It helped me realize that no matter the how much I code switch, no matter how much I attempt to assimilate and slick my hair back, my race will always walk into the room before I do. And we have a lot of work to do. And as a first in 2012, you know, while it's uh, flattering to make history, quote unquote, it actually illuminated just how much more progress we need to make. And so it really added a layer of responsibility right. and weight to this position that I was being handed. Uh, and I recognize that if I walk into this role pretending to be someone I'm not, I am doing a disservice to all the people who look like me, who come from where I come from, who've never had a seat at this particular table before. And if my race is going to walk into the room before I do, I better start embracing that and figuring out how to use that as my superpower. What are the stories that only I can tell? Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of, who are the kinds of voices that I can amplify? Um, and and it became, it really shifted my whole mission and it really reframed the significance of this opportunity for me. And so it began this longer process of taking masks off and getting comfortable finding my own authentic voice, which I think now is an overused buzzword, but I think it's an important concept. Um, and I couldn't do it alone. I had it, 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 it happened higher by higher, story by story. It took building a team of people who I who made me feel comfortable, who also helped contribute to changing the culture uh, in within the company. And I think we all helped each other find our collective voice. And I think in doing so, we then changed, um, dramatically shifted, actually, the the face and the voice and the impact of the brand that we worked for. Mm -hmm. I think a lot about the world since I started working versus where it is today. And to your point, we still have a long way to go. But it also is such a dramatic change, I think, culturally in workplaces. What what people are being, and especially people who are just starting out, junior level employees, are being told to do, being told to espouse. I remember when I started um, in like 2003, my mom told me, don't talk about your boyfriend. Don't ever talk about your personal life. Basically, don't. she also said don't date anybody at work. But it was literally <laughs> like, you should be a robot essentially yes, yes and show up and do your job and make them happy yes. and then you will succeed same and that is what in my opinion helped me in those early years agreed it's it's hard to say whether if i had if i had done things the way that sort of the messaging is today whether it would have served me well at that time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that the world has changed, but I don't know what it would be to walk into a workplace today and sort of come at it from this be true to yourself, be authentic standpoint if the culture of the workplace isn't appreciative of that. 
very true. And I certainly did not come into the I didn't I didn't walk into the doors of Teen Vogue with my fist up. <laughs> like I actually that- consider myself an accidental activist. I think that <laughs> label has been put upon uh-huh. me. Um I was just I just happened to be an outsider in an insider's mm. world. And by default, that uh, when you lean into that and when you lean into the stories that only you can tell as a journalist um, and you make it your priority to elevate a marginalized perspective, by default, the world will see you as an activist. And so I think sometimes activism is being your authentic self when you find yourself in places that were not built for you. That being said, you're absolutely right. Like I I think the world was shifting dramatically and the culture was shifting around these issues of, you know, diversity and inclusion and and also fashion intersecting with politics and, you know, all of that happened kind of it, it was a it was like a recipe for someone like me to be able to infiltrate this particular system and change it from the inside out. But there were a lot of things that had to work together to make that possible. I feel really yeah. lucky about the timing um, that I came into this industry or really when I kind of became a leader in this industry. Um, but for many years, I kept my head down. I did the I, I yes. followed the rules. I did come yep. in before everyone. I stayed later than everyone. I said yes to everything. I did every job under the sun. I wore every hat. I very much felt the pressure to work ten times as hard as my counterparts for equal respect. And I do think it benefited me uh, in my career. But mm-hmm. I found that when once I was at the head of the table, once I was in this leadership role, I had to do some rewiring. Because I think what it takes to get women to the top won't necessarily keep you there. And it won't necessarily aid you in doing your most transformative work. It's a very good point. We have to start, we have to learn how to, we have to unlearn a lot of things. Um, And we have to learn how to create boundaries. We have to learn that we do have limits. We are not superpowered. We are not superhuman. Mm -hmm. I'm loving what you're saying. We'll be back with more Elaine Welteroth after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So it's this weird thing where we're not superhuman, and in one respect, we say that we're not superhuman. But then in another respect, we're also constantly celebrating our superhumanity. Do you know what I'm saying? No. And you probably have your moments where you feel almost superhuman, where you're literally like, oh my gosh, my productivity, like, how did I do this? How did I do yesterday? How how did that even happen? And you feel like a little dance of happiness inside because you did it. But you also recognize that it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially if you're not enjoying it at this stage in your career. Um, In those early years, working really hard, not every day is going to be great. But then you get to these like 
sort of middle, later years in your career when you've accomplished a lot and you start thinking like, is this good? Is this right? Am I really happy? Yeah. You're going to have good days and bad days no matter where you're at uh, on the climb. Yeah. That's what I've learned. Yeah. And I have always been a hustler, a really hard worker. And what I've learned is that's never going to change. Yep. Like Just because you reach a certain level of success that you define for yourself, um, there's no destination. There's no finish line. Um, you will be very sad if you think that there is because each finish line you hit, you're like, oh. I don't know. Got I it. want more or what else or what else. Got to set the next bar. Yeah. yeah. And so you're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah, this is an interesting turning point. You're right that there does come a time where you do feel more liberation um, to speak freely about some of these challenges. And uh, I think it's important that we do because you and I are part of a new generation of women in le- visible leadership positions. And we have the responsibility to share tools that we didn't have. Yes. To make sure that this path that the younger women who are coming up behind us, um, that that that, that path is smoother, Mm -hmm. less confusing, that has some signposts along the way. I always say like, I don't want to be called a trailblazer unless I am leaving that trail with signposts that make it easier, less confusing, less daunting. Because um, there were very few blueprints that I could look look at and, yeah. and learn from. And there were few examples of women in power that I related to um, who I could talk to about some of the challenges that come along with success, like negotiating your salary, mm-hmm. like uh, burnout, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, in my case, microaggressions in the workplace. All of these are nuanced. Yes. And they're latent with their all of these cultural and social norms that our mothers actually can't even help us with because they they are from a different generation and it's a new day. And um, like you said earlier, like your mother was like, you know, don't cry at work. Yes. Don't talk about personal relationships. All of those things were relevant to that era and for that time and their survival tactics. But they're outdated depending on the industry that you're working in. But I, I would say largely... Everything is the, moving in the direction of that being outdated yes. if it's not already there. Yes. Was there anyone that you could talk to along the way mm-hmm. that you could ask? So there were people where you could I found go them. in and ask. And I how did you them find out. them? How did you figure that out? I was a stalker. <laughs> 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 no, I really was very intentional about it. This is where our journalistic skills come in handy because you know how to track someone down um, (laughs) and ask the right questions Mm -hmm. and get what you need um, to fill in the blanks of a story. And, you know, I I would not be where I am in my career. I would not even be in New York if it weren't for a woman named Harriet Cole, who became my first mentor and my first boss in this business, who I sought out. She was at Essence? At the time she was at Ebony. She started, she had spent more than a decade um, running fashion and beauty at Essence, but at the time she was at Ebony. And she had gone on to become, um, after her career at Essence, she went on to become a best-selling author. Uh, She had a really successful career in television and beyond. And I really loved how multifaceted her career in media was. I loved that she had carved out this intersection for herself in in media that really... she owned. Um, and, and it was this intersection between style, 
spirituality, and black culture. And I was like, you can create your own intersection in media and then build a multi-platform career? This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. None of the other job titles I was trying to fit myself into felt uh, fully fulfilling. Like I, I felt like I was squeezing myself into these limiting labels and I was just like oh but if I do psychology then what about my you know my eye for for fashion and style and this creative visually creative part of me and you know everything felt like a compromise until I read this woman's bio and it was like a light bulb went off in a dark room and so I proceeded to stalk her I got her this was before the age of Instagram when you can just slide into the DMs (laughs) of people that you admire um, and so I really had to I had to cold call her assistant regularly. I really did the work to track her down. I, I wrote her a long letter. I snail mailed it. I emailed it. And eventually she took 15 minutes out of her day to take an informational with me over the phone. I still lived in California at the time. She was in New York. I knew no one in the media business. And um, that phone call changed my entire life and it changed my it opened up my career trajectory because we made a connection that she remembered. And five months later, when she was looking for an assistant, she remembered me and called me back. And the rest is history. But it started with this. The mentorship from women in this business started from the very beginning of my career. And so as I grew in my career, I found myself seeking out other women that I could see myself in or that women whose careers um, felt like a little bit of a blueprint for me. So Mara Brock Akil is a very talented uh, black female television writer and creator. Um, She became a really important mentor for me. Ava DuVernay has become a a really significant mentor of mine. She wrote the forward for my book. Uh, Bozema St. John. uh, Who's been here on No Limits. Badass Boz. Who's (laughs) even more badass in real life than she is on social media, if you can imagine. So I've been, I mean, ugh. I have been there's an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the women in my life who have um, been supportive of me and my career. But it took me nurturing, seeking out and nurturing those relationships and bringing something to the table. I I respect that. And you I mean, I think to anybody out there who thinks I, you know, I'm looking for a mentor. It's not this wasn't easy. Okay, these are amazing names that you got on your side, basically, but you did it because you did everything in your power to seal those relationships. Yeah, and I did the work right. to be uh, to be able to bring something of value to the table in conversation with them as well. And I came to, with in the case of, of Harriet, um, I came with a spirit of service. I wanted to figure out how I could help her build her empire. I saw how I could be useful to her. And it wasn't just coming with my hands open, with empty hands open. And I think that's the thing that, you know, when people need to, younger people who are looking for a mentor need to remember that the best mentee-mentor relationships um, are mutually beneficial. And the best mentors I've had have actually been bosses that I worked for, for a good chunk of years. Um because you need someone who has the amount of time and energy to invest in you. And often working with someone is the best environment for that kind of um, information sharing and grooming to happen. 
So I think don't miss out on the opportunity for mentorship right wherever you are, including your peers. Like Mm -hmm. mentorship doesn't have to be top down. It can be bottom up. It can be left and right. So look to your the left and right. Look around you and look at people who are in your peer set because some of the best advice I've gotten and and now at this point in my career, I call my friends my colleagues mm-hmm. because I there are, there isn't a single business decision I make without checking in with certain friends of mine to say, can you help me gut check this? Do you think this rate is good? Would you negotiate this differently? And it's the best mentorship that uh, that I have, and it's in my it's in my friendships, and we're all the same age. <laughs> What's the hardest business decision you've had to make? Ooh, leaving Teen Vogue, hands down. That was both a very hard decision to make and one that I absolutely knew I had to make. Um, And once I, you know, I I have to credit, speaking of the mentorship, piece. I don't know if I would have had the courage to leave Teen Vogue, this brand that I had helped really build and transform. And and we there was so much momentum around it. But I knew in my heart of hearts that I had accomplished what I came to do and more. My ultimate bucket list of goals had all been checked off. And I was ready and eager and yearning for more. And there were more dreams that were being birthed inside of me. But I think it's really natural to feel that your job title and the company that you work for and the salary that you make defines you and uh, it can become a part of your identity. And so it's a scary thing to jump out on your own and build your own table, so to speak. Um, You know, I spent 10 years fighting for a seat at the table. Then I found myself at the head of the table at 30, which is way earlier than I ever anticipated. And then I had to challenge myself to be braver to say to myself, I'm ready to build my own tables. And um, but I would not have been brave enough to make that leap of faith if I didn't have two things. One, the example of Harriet Cole, who had done it before me, and therefore, I, because of her example, I came into the industry knowing the magazine part is just the first step. Then I'm going to make a leap of faith and there's so much more. I just didn't know what was going to happen at 30. <laughs> so <laughs> thankfully at 30, a new guardian angel mentor came into my life, Ava DuVernay, who sat across from me at this pivotal turning point in my career, looked at me in my eyes and said, Elaine, I think the universe is calling you to be braver right now. Wow. And once you hear some advice like that from a woman like that, you cannot unhear it. And that is what really helped me. I mean, there was no there was no decision to be made after that. The decision was made. Um, and I have never for a second, not once ever looked back. Yeah. Not once. Did you say, by the way, to Ava when she said this, okay, but here's the <laughs> I thing. I said, holy sh- <laughs> We're doing this. Yeah. That's what I said. Okay, because it's a we thing yeah. at that point. Because that's where I'm thinking. It's like, Ava, okay, great advice, Ava. Thank right. you Easy so for much. for you to say, Ava. Right, right. So you're going to help me with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you are going to help me make this happen. Honestly, the best help that she gave me was pushing me to be wow. my bravest self. And she actually, it was interesting. The de- I met her in person for the first time at the Teen Vogue Summit, which I built. Mm -hmm. 
And it felt like a little bit of a booby trap for me to attract this woman that I had idolized. And this was, I, I sort of set it up so that we could right. have an opportunity to connect. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, let's build a summit right. so I can meet all the people I want to meet. Exactly. And we had Hillary Clinton as our <laughs> keynote speaker. We, ha- I mean, it was an incredible day. But for the Ava DuVernay panel, I was like, I got this. <laughs> I'm moderating this one. And and that's what I mean by when I say, like, yeah. what are you bringing to the table? Yes. She had a movie coming out. Mm-hmm. She wanted to reach a younger audience. I had a platform that was beneficial to her for her projects. And um, so it wasn't like I was asking for a handout. And so that was the best way for us to be introduced to each other. And then she extended herself to me after that and said, come on over. Like, I want to learn more about you. I want to more. Le- I want to learn more about what your plans are. And in that context, I told her my whole story, essentially what I wrote in my book. And she sat across from me and she said, you know, multiple times you've said as you've been telling me your story, who is that girl? Who is that girl that was brave enough to cold call that woman and stalk her until she hired you and to do this and that to move sight unseen to across the country for a job that was going to pay you ten dollars an hour and had no you know there was no insurance that you were going to get an actual job or salary at the end of that summer all of these decisions that I'd made that I I, I now I'm looking back and I'm like I who the audacity of that girl and she said that girl is you mm. It's the girl who had the audacity to come to my house and sit in front of me and tell me her story the way you just told me your story. I think the universe is being is is calling you to be braver right now, Elaine. And it was one of those like prophetic moments that doesn't happen very often. And so when it happens and you have and it's so clear. Yeah. You have to listen to it and you have to and you have to go for it. And and I think that was her offering. It's not like we talked 10,000 times after that. It, that's what I needed. She gave me permission to make a move I needed to make for myself. And that was more than enough. That was more than that was more than enough. Um, and so I actually didn't rely on I didn't need anything else after that because I, I had faith in myself. Uh, speaking of making a move. Is oh, your life you going to be a movie? Should we do that? Yeah. I Who's going to play you, Elaine? Oh, my gosh. You know who I want to play me? Oh. I've never said this out loud, but this is a secret dream of mine. Zendaya. Really? Yeah, I was actually a little sad. I think what, I, you're in you're in Disney uh, oh, Disney territory right. right now, so we got that from my <laughs> mouth to the Disney gods' ears. Listen, I'm, I was, I don't know Zendaya, so I well, apologize. I, know I don't have any kind of sway, but you're inside of yeah, paging Bob Iger. Is paging, what they just yes. said. <laughs> well, I was a little sad. I mean, I'm happy it's her choice. for her. Yeah, it's her choice. She's from the Bay Area, like me. Uh huh. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why I think she'd be great, but. I was a little sad. I, I actually know Zendaya, and um, I just interviewed her for um, her new show, Euphoria. Yes. And when I saw her range on that show, I was shooketh. Yes. I was, but I also felt somewhere inside. I was a little sad. I was like, I knew you had this in you, but damn it, I wanted to be the. I wanted to be a part of the project that would present that to the world. Mm. Um, selfishly, but um, but no, I think she's such an extraordinary, multi-faceted star that hasn't had the opportunity until now to really show her her breadth and her depth. So, um, so fingers crossed. Hey, you put it out there, man. Put it out there. Manifest. Okay. Worst advice. We talked about this already, but um, we're coming back to it. Yes. What is the worst advice you've received? So the worst advice I've received uh, is actually advice I gave myself. I remember being in my early 20s and being asked, what is my career mantra? And so I, for some reason, went on Google and searched for 
advice. Smart career mantra. Exactly. (laughs) And stumbled upon this quote from Crocodile Dundee. Okay, so you should just know it's, it's so a bad random. sign from there. Yeah, so I know, I've random. literally never even seen Crocodile Dundee. So <laughs> the fact that I would take this and run you with it is... You were probably reading like quote after quote after like... Right. I mean, I can imagine doing something like that. Right. Like and on, one on just quotes.com. Seemed, yeah, and one just seemed to be the right one. I and then it was like Crocodile Dundee. I don't know. Is that right? Uh, okay. I don't know. Not that controversial. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but it just spoke to me. And, it's, and the quote was, bite off more than you can chew. And chew as fast as you can. And that just seemed to so eloquently sum up how I was moving through the world at that point. And I, I mean, I was hungry. I was saying yes to everything. I actually was nicknamed in my first job PB&J by the office manager because I would come in with a stack of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at the beginning of the day and I would put them on my desk and as I went through the day they would just go like down 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 oh my god because you wanted to stay there and increase your productivity because I didn't want to leave my desk to go eat because I was broke because it was the recession (laughs) and I just wanted to do the best job so I could keep a job frankly Um, because in those days yeah you know you had to work one day to the next because you just never you never knew but um Anyway, I I was definitely biting off more than I could chew and chewing as fast as I could and it was getting me it was get it was I it was proving to be uh successful for me and and then I turned 30 and I experienced what what I would characterize as some measure of burnout. And you people talk about it, but it's hard to recognize when it's happening to you, especially when you are a go-getter and you're a hard worker and you're unfazed by challenges, you just push through. By any means necessary, you make it happen. Like I remember I used to say, on my business card, just write, I make it happen. <laughs> I don't know if I can say <laughs> on here. Yeah, I'll we'll say bleep it. it. I'll, I'll, I make it happen. Yeah. Whatever the it is. Yeah. I'm your girl. You will do it. Oh, I'll get it done. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I got to a point where I found myself on this. I was just like depleted on a cellular level Mm -hmm. just from the years of uh, not taking care of myself, not sleeping right, not eating right, not working, not prioritizing working out and all of these things. And I found myself on this panel where we were talking about self-care and creativity. And I was completely dead behind the eyes. And I just felt like a fraud. I was like, how can I talk to these young girls about this when I am not well, honestly, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I'm happy. And someone on the panel said this really profound statement. She said, there is no glory in a grind that grinds you all the way down. And honestly, it just rang through my ears uh, all the way home. And I thought a lot about it. And I recognized that, you know, there are pros and cons to the hustle culture that we live in. Um, it's resulted in a lot of first women breaking gla- through glass ceilings. And it takes hustle to get to and stay at the top for sure. But if you want to be successful long term, you have to learn how to pace yourself so that you can you, – you have to think about like a marathon versus a short sprint. And um, and I so I learned to really understand how to create some boundaries and how to not necessarily always slow down, but to realign with what actually motivates me 
and to make sure I'm spending more of my time doing that. And I, I think that for a lot of women leaders, we need to learn how to create boundaries, how to say no, how to manage other people such that so that we are not doing other people's jobs and we're focused on the work that we're meant to do. Amen. And, amen, right? So I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I'm only 32. I do we're not have all it all learning. figured it out. I do not have it all figured out, but I think we need to we have a responsibility to share what you do know um, when you know it because listen, the people who I write for are young women like me who need this advice today. They don't need it when I'm 70 and I have it all figured out. You know, they need this today. And so that's why I wrote my book. And and that's why I'm so excited to be in conversation with someone like you because you have so much to share as well. And you have this amazing platform um, to go beyond the limits that we've set for ourselves to actually have real important conversations. So thank you for having me on. Thank you, Elaine. This was great. We really appreciate it. And I want to continue the conversation. So come back. We'll have, we'll, we'll, there's so many areas to drill down here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, it's the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. If you remember, that's where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of their own. And this week, it is Catherine McNamara. She is the CEO of Little Lentil Clothing. It's adorable, by the way. My daughter, Isabel, is now wearing the Little Lentil Clothing, and here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Katie McNamara, the founder and CEO of Little Lentil Clothing, an e-commerce site for sustainable and organic children's wear. In addition to sourcing sustainable children's wear, we offer a send back program where parents can send back their child's pre-loved clothes and receive a discount on their next order. We responsibly recycle or reuse the clothes so that parents don't need to worry about it. One of the greatest challenges I faced in starting the business is balancing entrepreneurship and motherhood. Both come with 24-7 demands and endless workloads. Uh, So I found what is most important is setting up support systems within my family and within the business so that I ultimately can be most productive in both areas. Congratulations, Catherine. Wishing you continued success. You can head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more of Catherine's story about how she built her company. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also send career questions. I've been doing my best to get through and answer as many of them as possible. We love hearing from all of you. My team and I, especially my producer, Taylor Dunn, shout out to Taylor Dunn. We love hearing from you. So please do send them along. Also, a shout out to the team that helps make this happen week after week. As I said, my producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to the ABC Radio as well. I also want to give a special shout out to our summer interns. They have been so helpful. Jada and Katie, Thank you so much for all your hard work. I can't wait to talk AI with you in the future. And to all of our listeners, I'll see all of you back here next week.